Section 38 of Norway, Sweden, Denmark, Iceland, Greenland and the Search for the Poles. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Max Schörling. The World's Story, Volume 8. Norway, Sweden, Denmark, Iceland, Greenland and the Search for the Poles. Edited by Eva March Tappan. Section 38. The Marriage of Gustavus Vasa in 1523 by Wilhelm Jensen. Much sorrow and woe had been poured out over Sweden by the hand of Christian of Denmark. Great joy and consolation had come through Gustav Eriksson and Gustavus Vasa, while the earth had completed its course around the sun, and now autumn was come again. Warm, sunny, northern autumn. Beneath the blue sky, the golden balls upon the cathedral spires of Uppsala shone far into the distance. They gleamed above the wild green forest, past rocks and brushwood, past the golden-brown tops of the beaches upon the royal mounds of old Uppsala, even to the shining, tranquil sea. Heaven and earth seemed steeped in blue and golden light, and joy shone from the blue eyes of the men, women and maidens in Uppsala. For half a league beyond the city, the broad highway was lined with eager crowds. From Westmanland and Södermanland they came, from the Svealand and farther still, from the icy lakes of Norrland and Norrbotten. Expectantly, all eyes gazed southward, for from thence he was to come, he whose name none need mention who spoke of his deeds, no longer now the lord and captain of Sweden, but its king, Gustavus Vasa. For a week past, the Diet had been assembled at Strängnäs, and two days ago it had chosen Gustavus Vasa, King of Sweden. And now he appeared. His eyes wore a gentler look than his new subjects had ever seen there. The warmth, the brightness, the sunny joyousness of the autumn day lay upon him. In regal attire, his ermine cloak sweeping the flanks of the horse that bore him so proudly, he rode beside the milk-white palfrey of Karina Stenbock, the royal bride of Sweden. She too bowed graciously to right and left. She wore no ermine cloak, but the jubilant throng was enraptured with her beauty, with the golden hair that streamed from under the circlet on her brow, falling in streams of brightness over her neck and shoulders. Suddenly the smile vanished from Karina's lips, and the thoughtful, strangely serious expression took its place. She lifted her hand. Something was fluttering toward her through the tranquil air. A white butterfly with red spots upon his wings. Fearlessly he rested upon her hand as upon the edge of a flower and spread his wings. The women in the crowd saw it and hailed the happy omen. The royal butterfly had come down from the mountains to greet Sweden's queen. Why does Sweden's queen gaze upon the white butterfly so absently, so lost in dreams, that she fails to see the people's joy at the peaceful omen? Is her ear listening westward 
through the still air? Does she hear, faintly in the distance, the roaring of the trolletta? No, it is too far. She hears only the rustling in the beech tops on Odin's hill. They, too, send their greeting to Karina's mute eyes. Gently, their branches sway against the sky. Karina started. The drums beat a flourish. They were entering Uppsala. The burgomaster of the city, surrounded by its senators and dignitaries, welcomed the king of Sweden in a solemn oration, to which the latter listened with exemplary patience, although we breathed more freely when the speech reached its end. The procession moved on, its destination known to all. The streets through which it passed were converted into a forest, the ground covered with a carpet of rushes and pine boughs. Now, the cathedral, in its gigantic proportions, rose before them, under the portal, the Archbishop of Uppsala, in full canonicals, and surrounded by his clergy, awaited them. In spite of his trailing ermine, the young king sprang lightly from his horse and lifted Karine from hers. Both bowed before the archbishop, who lifted his hands in blessing, and preceding them, walked toward the altar. The interior of the church was not ornamented. Its marvelous beauty and purity of form, the Gothic pillars, tall and slender, like clustering sheaves, rose to a dizzy height, sustaining the noble arch that hung above the central nave. Through the tinted windows streamed a tender, mellowed light, mingling strangely with the light of innumerable candles that surrounded the altar and gleamed upon its gold-embroidered cloth. The immediate retinue of the royal pair filled a large portion of the vast space. Behind them thronged the multitude, pouring into the church or climbing recklessly to the high windows, hoping to catch, at least from the outside, a glimpse of what was going on within. There, King Jösta and Karina Stenbock were to be married by the primate of Sweden. Just as the solemn ceremony was about to begin, a man was seen forcing his way through the crowd. He whispered some words to the king, who, with a short excuse, followed the messenger and disappeared. The people gazed after him in astonishment as he left his beautiful bride standing between her father and her blind mother, and an excited hum of voices ran through the church. But in a few moments the king reappeared. With beaming face he approached the archbishop and said, Permit me, most reverend lord, to speak before you in this holy place. It will not be profaned by my words, for, like yours, they come from God. He rapidly ascended the altar steps and spoke in a voice that rang loud and clear through the vast cathedral arches. Heaven sends two greetings to the people of Sweden. Stockholm is ours. This morning, at sunrise, the Danish commander surrendered the keys. Like one great cry of joy, it burst from a thousand lips. The last, longed-for end was reached. Sweden was free. The stormy rejoicings of the multitude were not to be restrained. Each embraced and kissed his neighbor. From a thousand voices the cry surged upward and echoed back from the arched roof. Long live King Gustavus! Sweden is free! And so it will continue, 
Gustavus's voice rang out above the tumult, for I have another message to deliver to the people of Sweden. The ambassador whom I sent to the Emperor Charles V has returned. The Emperor renounces the cause of his brother-in-law, Christian of Denmark, and offers to Sweden his friendship and recognition. The Danish people have risen against the king and put him under the ban. Karina's eyes shone with a new light when the king clasped her hand and leading her to the altar, whispered, And thus the second condition is fulfilled, Karina, before you become mine. Sweden is free. She did not look into his face as she answered, Yes, all the conditions are fulfilled. Sweden is free. And you are its queen. A quiver ran through the young girl's frame, a feeling at once of pride and awe. Firmly she stepped upon the velvet carpet. In the name of Almighty God, I greet you, Gustavus, King of Sweden, whom the nobles and commons of the land has chosen as their king. Generations of kings have come and gone. Upon this spot, the priests of another faith placed the crown upon the brow of the Ynglings, who deemed themselves the sons of Odin, the mighty. But they fell, like the leaves in autumn, and their memory has passed away. Here, the proud Folkungs received the crown from the hands of holy men, and were anointed with holy oil from Rome. But, like the foam of the sea, the traces have vanished. Many came after them, with great names and proud hearts, from near and from far, they were anointed and crowned. But where is their record? It is not the drop of oil from human hands that makes small things great and exalts the lowly. It is the spirit of the living God which must uphold the mightiest among men, lest their memory perish from among the righteous. Thus, I greet you, Gustavus Vasa, in the ancient city of kings, and I joyfully lift up my hands to the great king over us all, and give him thanks. Thus began the venerable bishop of Uppsala. Solemnly and powerfully, his words rolled over the thousands of bowed heads. As the wind stirs the sails of a ship, so they stirred the heart of each Swedish hearer, who heard in them the promise of a great and glorious future. Most deeply of all, they moved Karina Steenbach, who looked up with admiration to the majestic figure at her side, to the man she heard praised as an instrument of heaven, whom his people worshipped, and who had chosen her from among all others to help him to complete his work. After the struggle for peace, after the victory by the sword, to establish the supremacy of right and liberty, Yes, proud and happy at last, Karine looked upon the ermine that fell from the shoulders of her royal bridegroom. It seemed as though she heard from above a rustling like that of the beech tops on Odin's hill. To help others and to serve a worthy end. How far otherwise than she had imagined events had shaped themselves. How far more perfectly would a queen succeed in realizing those high endeavors which the sunbeams above the slumbering world had revealed to her soul. 
And this duty was her choice, a proud and willing choice. And proudly, joyfully, Katina's eyes during the Archbishop's sermon looked on high and at the listening crowd that thronged about the altar. The Almighty God bless you and keep you King and Queen of Sweden. May he rule your hearts for your own happiness and for the welfare of your country. May he lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Like a plain citizen, Gustavus Vasa bent down and kissed his wife. End of section 38 This recording is in the public domain. Recording by Max Schörling.